Orlando Ori Spado was born on December 17, 1944, in Rome, New York, where he attends high school at Rome Free Academy. At the age of 18, Ori joins the U.S. Army and serves his country proudly, and is discharged honorably in 1966. He returns to Rome and has various jobs until he sells insurance for the Prudential Insurance Company, where he is a leading agent. After his marriage and three children, Ori moves to San Francisco, where he marries his second wife, and then, after another divorce, he moves to Beverly Hills, California. Here he becomes known as the Hollywood Mob Boss, enjoying a friendship with the legend underboss Sonny Franchisi of the Colombo family for over 40 years, a friendship that remains to this day. In his new book, The Accidental Gangster, Mr. Spado tells the true story of his life, he lived it, he owns it, and takes full responsibility for the actions of his past. You can pre-order your autographed copy at theaccidentalgangster.com while supplies last. I've already purchased my copy, so don't delay. A link can be found in today's show notes. In the early 1920s, a poor boy born in a Jewish neighborhood of the Bronx has a difficult life ahead of him. The fabled American dream will be elusive and probably attained only through generations of struggle. But for one man, that wasn't going to be good enough. With an ambition as fierce as his volatile temper, he will fight to gain the fear and respect of his neighborhood, his city, and eventually the Italian mob. With a penchant for intimidation and a lust for violence, he will seek his American dream by force and demand the attention of a nation. And nothing gets attention quite like the bright lights of Las Vegas, Nevada. The Las Vegas that we know today might not exist without the visionary actions of one particular man who made his way there through sheer violence, brutality, relentless racketeering, and of course, murder. This is the legend of Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster Harris Company. Time feuds of public enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This here, what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing, this is my doom, 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 doom. It is going to be the longest show. I can feel it already. <laughs> so, so do you hear that in the background? It can only be one thing. Hear what? Rats. It's rats. <laughs> it's been a, a lot of rats in my week lately. So it kind of brought me to the to the topic because uh, I think I'm on the record as saying I hate a rat. Yeah, and you I, are. I, I just assume that everybody <laughs> feels like I do, you know, because I'm a pretty normal guy and I think that I have normal guy thoughts. But apparently, I could be off on this, and it got me wondering: Does this nation just love a rat? Like they love them as much as I hate them? I'm saying yes. America loves rats. I don't know. I f- I could be playing devil's advocate, but I also feel like people, like every day the average person wants to promote the idea of never ratting, never snitching, but I feel like 99% of the time, put in that position, they're ratting immediately. Yeah, like, it's in, like, in my life, it's no longer part of the culture. Yeah. 
it's people fantasy. Yeah, six times a day in my my line of work. I can't believe the people come and tell me things. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's fantasy now. The die-hard loyalty of never ratting, never giving out any information on someone you know. Dro- the drop of a hat. Yeah, people are ratting nowadays. I just think it's a miracle the mob can even operate now. Yeah, just it everything is. Everything that's going on. I mean, you could it definitely you can tell by the presence though. Yeah. I was so underground, so quiet. Yeah. They have, like, no influence now, from what I can tell. I don't know how you could trust anybody now. I would assume everyone has a wire. I'm being watched. Someone's an informant. Three out of the four people in this room are dragging the cops. (laughs) It's not just the mob, either. Look how many people in, like, the uh, government now are telling on each other. We used to have, like, a at least a tight inner circle. There's no inner circle. Everybody wants a book deal. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, I'll just turn coat and uh, write a book. 60 minutes interview. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like, they don't even consider them rats in the conventional sense. They've taken a rat. They gave it a nice bath, right? They fluffed <laughs> up his hair, put a bow on him, yeah. and they renamed him Whistleblower. <laughs> right? Like, would you consider somebody like Monica Lewinsky a rat? Well, no, because she didn't rat. I would consider yeah. Linda Tripp the rat. Yeah. In that situation. What do you think about Snowden, then? Edward Snowden. Because mm. his rat was ultimately for the better good. But if some of those people at the NSA, they might consider him a rat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I gotta say, he's still a rat. Yeah. He's still a rat. I would say he's still a rat, yeah. Different kind of rat. A good rat. Yeah. This, this is, like you said, this is a slightly more clean rat. Maybe it might look like a mouse from a certain angle. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you take, like, uh, Henry Hill. Rat. That's a classic rat. Rat. He's a classic rat, but... When you watch Goodfellas, don't you like him? Yeah, mm-hmm. rooting for him the whole time. Yeah, right. Yeah. I talked to. Uh, I've kind of been uh, in correspondence with somebody I know that does does not think he's very nice. <laughs> doesn't think much of him at all. Doesn't like, like Henry. Does not refer to him as a gentleman. <laughs> but I mean, we have Goodfellas to think of because of people like Henry Hill. I said before we started, most of the best movies are because yeah. information divulged by rats. Yep. Unfortunately for some people. Departed. Yeah. Uh, Donnie Brasco, kind of. Uh, Donnie Brasco's not a rat, he's a cop. It's, yeah, yeah. It's like a reverse. <laughs> yeah. reverse. He was, yeah, he was always on the other side. Yeah. He's yeah. got a job to do. He's a mole. Yes. Mole. A, a rat would be somebody who hung out with you and took the oath and did everything you did for 20 years, but now he's not going to go down because he told yeah. all the shit yeah. and he got immunity. And uh, he did everything you did, but now he's going to say you did it and you go down. Uh-huh. And, you know, like instead of just me, wouldn't it be better to get nine of my friends? Yeah. You know, and that's hence hence you have the rat. But think about rats in The Sopranos, Bill. <laughs> they almost always you never liked them. I mean, uh, I don't want to spoil it for Brett, but uh, one female. You haven't seen Sopranos all. Not the all the way through. No. I hate to get off subject, but they're doing a prequel. Did you see that? I did not Many see that. Many Saints of Newark. Yes. Oh. yes. They're going to go back like, John to, to Junior and uh, okay. this guy's young. That's a good reason to finish it now. John Bernthal's yeah. in it. Yeah, that's a huge, that's a yeah. huge deal. But yeah, they had they had their rats in there. But I, what I like in Sopranos is everybody gets killed, and then they say they're in the witness protection program. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, what do you mean? He's in the witness protection program. <laughs> no, the mobs looking at each other like. <laughs> or with. Uh, those feds when they're looking at each other like. No, I, I don't know anything about that. 
Not to my knowledge. <laughs> and then she threw up on the table. Yeah, when she when it all came down, she realized, oh, that was great. On vacation. <laughs> okay, welcome back to Partners in Crime. I am your host, Bill Crooks. Some people call me Gunner. <laughs> I called me Gunner last show. <laughs> Nobody at this table calls you Gunner. <laughs> to my right, as much as Arnold Rothstein conspired to fix the World Series, he once conspired to fix a miniature schnauzer. It's Zach the Zip Griffith. <laughs> Great to be back. Great intro. Great intro. And across the aisle, sitting jaded and contemptuous toward anything you'd consider cooler hip, it's the cinematic scrutinizer. Brett Sexton. <laughs> Good to be back. And sadly, sitting at the controls, possibly for the last time, if he doesn't make better life choices, it's Joshua the Intern. I've had a long week. Indeed you have, my friend. Indeed you have. Uh, a long week, and it is... What day is it? <laughs> it's Tuesday. It's a Tuesday. It is a Tuesday. Action-packed Monday. Just to clarify, it is a Tuesday being recorded. Uh, someone... I was hanging out with over the weekend, real good guy, his name was Jay Cook. He sent me an email reminding me of an article in the Indianapolis Star a while back. This article was originally called The Mobster in Our Midst. It's by Zach Kiefer, who's really a sports writer, Zach was saying. Yeah, he's the Colts beat writer for the Star. So I was, when this came out like a year ago, I was shocked it was him. I wonder how he got involved in this. Yeah. But it says he's reporting from an article by Elizabeth Flynn. Let's see. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to read the whole article. Obviously, we'd be here for uh, two days. <laughs> or I do read the whole article. And we just phone this one in. <laughs> uh, we're not going to do that. But I want to give you a gist of it. John Franchese Jr. helped send his father, notorious Colombo family mobster Sonny Franchese, to prison. Then he turned up in Indianapolis, which, by the way, is where we're recording from. Mm-hmm. That's, our, that's where we're hailing from. If they wanted to kill him, he knows how they'd do it. He'll see it at night sometimes, lying in bed, eyes shut, mind spooked, the scene he's long feared unfolding in the darkness, a barrage of bullets startling him from his sleep, his past crashing into the present, icy revenge served. Some pieces of his old life never left him, so they just sit there all these years later, crammed into his mind's darkest corners. You want to off a guy? He remembers how. You tail him. You study him. You wait. John Franchese Jr. knows how easy a mark he'd be. You look for patterns, he says. I'm not hard to look for. Not anymore. Same breakfast at the same Panera Bread every morning for 11 years. Same route to Mass at St. Matthew every Wednesday night for a decade. Same recovery meetings week after week, year after year. These days, routine is everything. In the old days, routine got you killed. They'd follow him to the converted two garage on the north side of Indianapolis he calls home, the one tucked halfway behind a house where he helps a half a dozen men stay sober. They'd bust through the door and hurry through the kitchen, past the Bible verses tacked to the wall, past the handwritten notes from the high school students he speaks to and addicts he counsels. They'd find him in the bedroom. It'd be over quickly. He wouldn't have a chance. You know how easy a setup this is, he shrugs. I don't keep guns here. He knows, he knows. It's the fate that meets the man who meets the choices he made. You don't testify against the mob in federal court and live to tell about it. Especially when your father's the defendant. 
I know the statement my dad made. He said he'd kill me. John Sonny Francesi, Jr., changed his name after he asked to go into the Witness Protection Program and is now known as Matt Pazzarelli. But that was nine years ago, and truth is he's been cheating death for 40. The gun-toting gangster who sank into a street-crawling crack addict who found God and himself got clean, stayed clean, and made a decision to tell the truth, walk away, and hide. Maybe he'd spend 10 years in witness protection. Maybe he'd spend the rest of his life. He always thought they'd come for him, and part of him still thinks they will. He wore a wire for nine months, logged over 400 hours of tape, and became the U.S. government's key witness in the case against aging mafia capo Sonny Francesi, a long-feared wise guy who was once caught on tape bragging about his favorite way to dismember a corpse. Chop up the body in a kiddie pool, dry out the bones in a microwave, then run them through a garbage disposal. John Francesi Jr. called him dad. And never thought he'd see him again, not after slinging out his 93-year-old father in a Brooklyn courtroom in 2010 and sending him back to prison. The son had broken the mafia's code of silence. He'd testified against his father in open court, the first of the annals of organized crime. Rats my boy, screamed the headline of the New York tabloids. Sonny Francesi, once a feared member of the Colombo crime family, earned a 50-year prison sentence in the late 1960s for organizing a slew of bank robberies. By 2017, Sonny was freed, the 100-year-old gangster allowed to spend his final days outside of the prison walls he'd known half his life. That same year, some 700 miles west, his son signed out of witness protection in a parking lot in Indianapolis, tired, a friend said, of living a life in a cage. So late this winter, time melting away, John booked the rental car and headed for New York City, the 12-hour drive he always knew he needed to make. He kept his plans quiet, worried they'd still be looking for him. He wondered most, though, about the look on his father's face. How would the old gangster react? Disbelief? Rage? Mercy? His son, the rat, was coming to see him. The next day, John rose early. He shaved, slipped on his favorite pair of pants, his favorite sweater, his best shoes. He drove the rental car to the retirement home. He signed his alias at the front desk, took the elevator up to the second floor, and wandered anxiously down the hallway. Then he saw him. There he was, the man in the gray sweatsuit, slumped in a wheelchair watching TV, the father he once revered, the man who ordered his murder. The son approached, heart racing, nerves bubbling, and began with a question. Do you know who this is? No, Sonny Francesi, slumped in a wheelchair, didn't know the man standing in front of him. At least not at first. It had been nine years since the courtroom in Brooklyn, his son singling him out, making headlines, then disappearing. They weren't supposed to see each other after that, but here he was. It's John, his son said. John? Dad. Sonny's eyes lit up, his arms opened. John! The father beamed, and the son exhaled. At first, Sonny was stunned. His son, the snitch, had come to see him. He was worried about his boy. Are you okay, Sonny asked. Did you sign in? God forbid anyone found you here. A gangster, even at 102. It's still in him, his son says. But more than that, he was a father. He'd missed him. They talked for almost two hours. Sonny wanted to know every piece of his son's life. Johnny told him about his mornings at Panera, his sobriety, the men at the halfway house, and his life in Indianapolis. Indianapolis, Sonny blurted. 
That's close to Chicago. You can't let people know where you live. They talked about John's mother, about Sonny's long days in the retirement home, about the wrinkles on John's face. Finally, they talked about the trial. You know, son, Sonny said, that wasn't a very nice letter you wrote to the judge. I know, Dad. Why'd you do it? Sonny had his theories. Did they offer you half a million dollars? Was it your mother? Was it the FBI agent? Did he talk you into it? No, 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 John told him. Dad, I love you, he said. I never did it to hurt you. Silence, then more silence. John wasn't sure how to tell his father that life, his life, was never in him. He faked it for years, playing the part, but he was never going to be the next Sonny Francesi. By the time he realized it, he'd run out of options. But finally, the silence was broken. You're my son and I love you, John remembers his father muttering, but you've always been a fucking crazy. I got a son who's crazy, but he's my son. It was enough. The father forgave and the son healed. So that was the story. Yeah, that was a hell of a story when it came out, and <laughs> it holds up, to say yeah. the least. Yeah, that's, yeah, he's right here. He's in town. He's a rat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A bonafide rat. Come on, man, you put your yeah. dad away. If you want to come clean, come clean, and you talk about all the shit you did. You know what I mean? But, like, I'm going to save my soul by uh, throwing you in jail. Yeah. I'm going to come clean on the stuff my dad did. Yeah, come on. Not my stuff. Yeah. But also, yeah. Pulling a 93-year-old man and then sentencing him to 50 years? Yeah. It ain't like, right. probably is like, I'm going to die in prison. I'm not, <laughs> not making the 50 years. Uh, I don't know, man. I know I'm supposed to be touched by that, but uh, I was less than. <laughs> Although I did my best. <laughs> you know, but I'm thinking if I'm that kid, you know, the dad's like, oh, it's so good to see you. I'm going to use the restroom. <laughs> it's like, how oh, the hell you are? <laughs> You're going to sit here all day until I get out of here. <laughs> I, I just want to call somebody and tell them how happy I am. Let them know my boy's back. <laughs> Let me go get my friend. They'd love to see you. They'd love to see you. Uh, but I thought it was a great story. Like I said, I was really glad I got that today. It was, uh, it was cool, so I threw it in the show. Okay, I say let's get started. Benjamin Hyman Siegelbaum, later changed to Siegel, is born to parents Jenny and Max Siegel in the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn on February 28, 1906. The Siegels wind up being a big family, with Ben as the second of five kids. By all accounts, Max and Jenny are constantly struggling to make ends meet, the former a cabinet maker by trade, and working odd jobs around the city for less than desirable wages. Siegel, tired of seeing his parents struggle to put food on the table, vows to himself that he will not be bound to such a life. The first step toward financial freedom is dropping out of school and joining a gang. Running with a Lafayette Street crew on Manhattan's Lower East Side, Siegel largely commits a string of petty thefts and other minor crimes until crossing paths with a man named Moe Sedway. It's during his time with Sedway that Ben begins making a name for himself in the racketeering world. Using an ingenious business model, Siegel and Sedway strong-arm local pushcart owners by offering fire insurance, aka threatening to incinerate their merchandise unless they agree to pay a protection fee of $1. Despite quote-unquote protecting his hometown merchants, Siegel can't protect himself from the law and quickly compiles an impressive criminal resume that includes charges of robbery, rape, and murder going back to his teenage days. 
In the end, however, the only charge that sticks during this period is a 1930 gambling and vagrancy rap, to which he pays a $100 fine and walks free. So this kind of covers a broad time, but when he starts his life in the street and he's going up to people and saying like, uh, you know, I want to sell you fire insurance, stuff like that. And they're like, get out of here. He takes their cart and just shoves it over. And like all their apples and oranges are going down the street. And, and he loves it. He's having a great time. Okay. Now, when he starts this, he is 10 years old. Jeez. They're paying a dollar a week to a 10 year old kid. And he's doing this, it seems like, roughly from 10 to 14. And he escalates to where, like, at one point they kind of got emboldened and told him to go to hell. And uh, he poured kerosene all over the carts and he burned them all up that night. Wow. So now it, it's, <laughs> God. it's crazy. Yeah. You need but the fire insurance. He's a child. Right? Yeah. They say he was a really stocky 10-year-old. Like, he was tough. Can you imagine, like, a 10-year-old walking up and down your street and, like, and he's modeling himself. There's older gangsters that don't have time for this crap. Yeah. And he's kind of modeling himself after them and just pulling the same kind of crap they pull, only on a smaller scale. Hey, how about this rap sheet? Yeah. I mean, what was the one you told us about before? White slavery. Yeah, what's that? I, I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like prostitution of some sort. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe that's tied in with the rape. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's really strange. Like, if it's... Nowadays, you have a rap sheet like this, your life's over. Your life is over. And back then, it's just like, eh, you rape, murder, eh. Yeah, the rape complaint was dismissed because Lansky allegedly convinced the accuser to drop the charges. So that's how he got out of that. Or how one. he did that? <laughs> Settled out of court. Right. And <laughs> a lot weird. of these, yeah, and we'll see how he gets out of a lot of these down the road. Yeah. <clears throat> the criminal charges against him may not stick. Something that does stick, however, is Ben Siegel's reputation for dramatic and violent mood swings, reportedly causing his friends to tease that he is as crazy as a bedbug. Always eager to assign a nickname, the underworld hoodlums begin to refer to him as Bugsy, a name that Ben despises and is never called to his face without swift retribution. I was a little... Uh concerned about the bed bug thing and why that's such a thing because all the documentaries they're like because he was crazy as a bed bug and i'm like that's that's not a thing <laughs> you know so i look it up so apparently a bed bug moves in an erratic fashion that seems crazy and there's also evidence that bed bug infestations at the time were heavily on the psychology of the people afflicted by them so people suffered massive anxiety attacks over being like sacrificed or fed to these bugs in the middle of the night and like because you're basically if you think if you're there you're screwed you have to sleep right yeah and there's bed bugs so they're gonna crawl out at night and they're gonna eat your flesh and uh i think some people handle that better than others you know i'm thinking that drinkers are probably more That's, okay with it yeah. but yeah people would actually go nuts so it's kind of a twofold thing a that the bed bug moves crazily and also that people infested with bed bugs can can go crazy That's so, some fear factor so stuff the, right the nickname made more sense yeah um Another of Siegel's earliest acquaintances in gangland is Meyer Lansky. In contrast to the fiery Ben Siegel, Lansky is a more reserved man of intellect, but recognizes the need to bulk up his crew. So I saw one cool story. They all talk about how these two get together and they're different, but they're kind of like the gangster odd couple hanging out. But one cool story I saw was Lansky's coming down the street. I think he's a little bit older. Bugsy's 
grappling with a gun with somebody and they're fighting over this pistol and stuff and a cop's coming up and everything so Lansky is telling him you gotta go you gotta go yeah. Siegel's a psycho and he won't let go of the gun Lansky's finally knocking the gun to the ground and like look you gotta get out of here Siegel's not happy at all about it and he's pissed off and Lansky's like man you gotta use your freaking head somehow these two end up being friends uh, and it kind of serves them well like Lansky's the brains and, uh, and Siegel's the brawn yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometime in this period, Meyer Lansky has a confrontation with Lucky Luciano. Luciano is trying to muscle into the Jewish rackets, demanding a tribute from the fledgling gangs. Lansky assures Charlie that his gang is not one to be pushed around or intimidated. Always the big picture visionary, Luciano respects Lansky and forms an informal friendship and loose alliance with the gangster. Similarly, Meyer determines that the dynamics of organized crime are changing, and decides to give his fellow Jewish Brooklyn boys a chance at expansion. Lansky models his Jewish gang after rival Italian and Irish gangs, and he chooses Siegel as his first recruit. They form what will be known as the Bugs Meyer Gang, and quickly escalate to things like gambling and Grand Theft Auto. They also become adept at armed robberies, and fencing things like furs and jewelry. There's a few interesting things here. One, a big part of the street life for these guys is the uh, little gambling circles. So they're running craps games and things like that. Like during the day, they'll be orchestrating crap games in alleys and stuff. And then at night under streetlights, when you're running the game, you're always winning. And they picked up on that pretty quick. Another thing is, you know, like here they're meeting Luciano. And we talked about in the uh, Masseria episode when Masseria is in this fight with Maranzano and he's he's trying to be the boss of bosses and doing his things the old Sicilian way we had said Luciano behind his back is forming networks and building things up this is where that's happening he's making friendships with Lansky and Bugsy Siegel and these guys and these are tough friends to, to have in your corner so while he's doing business on the other side of town he's heading over to the Jewish neighborhood you know initially to shake him down when he realizes that's not going to happen he's kind of building his secondary army there we got grand theft auto down here how easy was it to steal a car back then i mean if no one was around it's like robbing a bank back then if you were gone but then the police showed up you got away with it i feel like if you just <laughs> no one stopped you physically from taking the car like, did, did they, you have to like crank the car up did you? So yeah, I think so. There's a start crank in the front. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Okay. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. Like if no one stopped you from doing that, I think you just get away with it. Someone has to physically hold you down to the police. Get hold this cranking arm. With the establishment of his new gang, Bugsy quickly becomes caught up in the bootlegging boom of the era, running booze within several East Coast cities such as Boston and Philadelphia. The biggest break came in the form of Arnold Rothstein, the notorious gangster best known for fixing the 1919 World Series, a scandal now known as the Black Sox. They began working for Rothstein, who's putting together an organization of ambitious gangsters to handle his legal operations. Bugsy is escalating on many crime fronts, now embracing the role of hitman, with his talent for violence becoming so evident that Lansky even hires out Siegel services to rival crime families. He is now handling hit contracts for the multitude of crews throughout New York and New Jersey. So this alliance with Rothstein explains how Siegel gets out of a lot of this trouble. He's learning from Rothstein that politicians are paid off, and now he's under the protective wing of Rothstein. So a lot of the stuff we read about before where he paid $100 and got off, that's all set up by Rothstein. Yeah. That wasn't done on his own merits. 
this is also where we start to see Lansky being the brains and him being the brawn. One of the best ideas Lansky had is bootlegging is the big thing now. And everybody can make the booze, but not everybody can move it. Trucks are expensive, and renting trucks are expensive. Mm-hmm. So Lansky's like, hey, let's go into the truck rental business. So they start renting trucks to bootleggers. So they're basically one of the first rent-a-cars. Nice. <laughs> and they can cut, you know, they can cut the rates way down because they're stealing their trucks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're not buying trucks and renting them out. <laughs> buying brand new vehicles. Yeah. <laughs> Seagull will go down the road, hijack a truck, and then rent it to you dirt cheap. Also, how good of a hitman does he have to be for Lansky to just hire out his services to other other gangs? He's he loves it. Like he he's not. This is not a, a labor for him. He likes yeah. to do this. It's such the passion, the pastime, and it's something I think he never gets rid of. And I think it's hard for people to understand when they meet him because they say he is good looking. He's charming. He's they say he's funny as hell. Like he's got a great sense of humor and stuff. And it's hard to associate him with the absolute murdering psychopath that he is. And he doesn't just do it. He likes to do yeah. it. <laughs> Siegel builds up his own gang to include the likes of Abner Longies Willman, Louis Lepke Buckhalter, and Meyer's brother Jake Lansky. Siegel uses his good looks and charismatic nature to get on the good side of both allies and foes alike. A childhood friend of Al Capone, Siegel aids his old pal when an arrest warrant was issued for the infamous Scarface. Bugsy sets up Capone at an aunt's house, allowing the mobster to lay low while law enforcement looks to serve the warrant. By the young age of 21, Siegel is coming into his own. He's wearing flashy clothes and hitting the famous New York City nightlife and flaunting his vast wealth around. He's able to secure an apartment at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and a Tudor home in Scarsdale, having made a killing in the opioid and drug trade. Joseph Doc Stacher, a member of the Bugs and Meyer mob, recounts to Lansky biographers that despite his partying lifestyle, Siegel could always be counted on when push came to shove. Bugsy never hesitated when danger threatened. While we tried to figure out what the best move was, Bugsy was already shooting. When it came to action, there was no one better. I've never known a man who had more guts. 1929 proves to be a big year for Bugsy Siegel. On January 28th, Bugsy welcomes in the new year by marrying his childhood sweetheart, Esta Krakauer, who also happens to be the sister of contract killer Whitey Krakauer. It's unclear which guy should be more afraid of the other. You know, Esther Krakauer, what a pretty name. <laughs> it's a funny name now, but you got to remember back then there was no crack whore. Yeah. <laughs> she would have been Esther Crack whore, you know, but they didn't, they didn't have that fodder to play with. This is where Bugsy begins a double life, like husband and father. Mm-hmm. He's essentially commuting from a really nice neighborhood where Jews usually aren't even allowed back then. It's everybody's a wasp back then. But he, he muscles his way in. I don't think anybody's going to tell him no. And uh, he looks legit. He gets up in his suit and stuff, and he's going off to work. Nobody really knows what he's up to. And he's described as a doting father. He spends a lot of attention to his daughters. He adores his wife, but he continues his uh, life as a ladies' man undaunted. <laughs> like, marriage did not slow him down at all. He did not care. He's still out at the nightlife with every woman he can hook up with. That's another recurring theme of this double life. Yeah, <laughs> give your give the wife a kiss on the cheek, kids a kiss on the head before you go out to murder and bury men in the rivers of New York. It is. It's it's the ultimate compartmentalization. But I think the difference with Bugsy is he might be in the paper with a girl on his arm, and he mm-hmm. just doesn't seem to give a damn about his wife's feelings. Yeah. I don't know how she feels about <laughs> yeah. it. But 
Yeah, at some point she gets sick of gets it. Gets that yeah. kiss on the cheek, opens up the front page of the paper, and there's your husband with his arm each around a different girl. <laughs> That's just business, baby. <laughs> Later that year, Lansky and Siegel venture to the Atlantic City Conference held between May 13th and 16th, acting as the representatives of their own gang. The meeting is held at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Atlantic City by Luciano and Johnny Torrio, a former boss on Chicago's South Side. Siegel and Lansky headline the event when they take charge regarding the discussion on the future of organized crime in the region. Siegel's epically philosophical quote rings throughout the boardroom. The Yids and the Dagos will no longer fight each other. (laughs) Deep, deep quote. They're both, like, offended for one second, and they go, well, you got us both. Hey, they all go back to drinking. Inevitably, the crew aligns itself with one-time rival Lucky Luciano, who is envisioning a more multicultural network of organized crime. Standing in the way of this vision, of course, are the powerful Mustache Peets, who are violently defending the old Sicilian ways, namely Giuseppe Masseria and Salvatore Maranzano. Bugsy associates himself with the likes of Albert Anastasia, Vito Genovese, and Joe Adonis. Together, the quartet allegedly acted as the killers of Masseria, carrying out orders from Luciano on April 15, 1931, and essentially ending the infamous Castellamarese War. Luciano then exploits the murderous talents of Siegel and company by sanctioning four men from the Bugsy and Meyer mob to take out Salvatore Maranzano. Now this is the famous hit where Bugsy and company disguise themselves as federal agents, and Maranzano right now is going through some tax evasion stuff. So he's expecting some federal interference, but he's, he's telling all his guys, like, play it cool. Don't have any weapons in the office and stuff. Because <laughs> they're expecting, like, the tip they're getting, which might have been fed by Luciano, is that this, this raid is coming. So they're ready, right? So when these guys come in, they're all like, yeah, 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 do what you got to do. They get their hands up on the wall, and these guys just start stabbing their hands <laughs> in the sides. Walked they, right they, into it. Yep. Uh, and he was yeah happily you know and we'll see that kind of trick again in the future but that's what that's where it went down it's Maranzano's elimination that allows Lucky to vault his way to the pinnacle of the American mob setting up the commission and marking the onset of modern organized crime in the United States these high profile killings elevate the young gangster to a whole new level of power and reputation Luciano soon regards him as a man that can be unilaterally depended on Siegel's partner Lansky teams up with Luciano to establish the National Crime Syndicate while Bugsy forms his own organization, Murder Incorporated. Siegel and Lansky eventually move on from the syndicate and Murder Inc., handing over control of the latter to Albert Anastasia and Louis Buckhalter. Bugsy continues working as a trusted contract killer for the group. At this point, Bugsy no longer needs to get his hand dirty. He can simply dispatch soldiers to do the violence for him, which would be a smart move because he could keep his hands clean and avoid unnecessary indictments. He does not elect this course of action. He leads hit groups, he, and he just indicates that he likes this aspect of the job very much. And a lot of times, I think even Lansky and these guys are like, Bugsy, let, let, let them handle this. He's like, oh, they can handle it, but I'm leading the way. Yeah, let's go. And uh, he just puts himself in the front of this stuff all the time. Like, he loves it. It's not for the money. You know, he just loves doing this stuff. I mean, we, we pounded into the ground, but their egos are just ungodly. They're just 
Un- they're just untouchable. Disgusting egos. <laughs> well, just think that how in the same room you have Al Capone, you have Louis Buckholder, you yeah. have Albert Anastasia. <laughs> you know, like, my God. It's, it's, uh, it's unfathomable that even one of these men could exist in the city. Yeah, let alone, yeah. they're probably all at the same party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's just some poor waiter that just didn't make it home for no reason at all. <laughs> In 1932, Siegel finds himself at odds with the Fabrizio brothers, associates of Waxy Gordon. Gordon is a close associate of Arnold Rothstein, who had cashed in his chips in 1928, leaving Gordon severely weakened. Luciano and Lansky have their eyes on the acquisition of Gordon's rackets. Lansky, in particular, finds himself in a small-scale war with Gordon and enlists Bugsy to kill somewhere between three and six major figures in the Waxy Gordon organization. Waxy enlists the help of the Fabrizio brothers after going to prison for tax evasion in 1933, thanks to Lansky and Siegel providing information to the IRS. And uh, here's where you have rat alert. Yeah. <laughs> Luciano was in on it too. You know? So as much as those guys hate rats, they ratted on Waxy for the purposes of taking over his business decision. Yeah, yeah, it's, they, a, they, it's a business rat. Yeah. They tipped off the IRS on how to how to catch him. I guess if you're gonna rat and to make more money, that'd be the most respectable way to do it. Or ratting to save the commission or yeah. the the family as a whole. They might look at it in a little better light. But just a rat to get out of your own conviction. Yeah. That's where they... Yeah, I disagree. You send your team to go kill Waxy Gordon. That's the respectable uh, okay. thing to do. All right. <laughs> They'll you've, got to sol- kill them. you've got soldiers for a reason. You've got a point. That's what they're there for. We said we don't rat. <laughs> like, there's got to be some kind of code. IRS, I guess, is... Off. They're not off limits. You can talk to the IRS. Now they're a wing of your enforcement? <laughs> I don't know. It stinks. That's probably how he phrased it in his mind. He's like, they're actually working for me. Because I need him gone. I give them information. They take him out. Maybe that's how he rationalize uh, ratting to the IRS or the feds. Is in his twisted mind. Lucky's like, I actually got the IRS doing my dirty work i don't know i'd just tip him off toward like the police or a politician that's evading tax you know? <laughs> send him in another circle altogether. Wild, wild goose chase you know where the crime's going on in the cop station you know where the real dirt is wall street <laughs> it's, it's even true yeah. yeah needless to say the fabrizio brothers are not the biggest fans of siegel and company but taking them out of the picture presents its challenges Bugsy is their first target, but they find him to be well-guarded at all times. When it's discovered that Siegel is currently in a hotel restaurant, presumably listening to a prize fight on the radio, one of the Fabrizio brothers makes a bold move. Finding a vulnerability in the form of an unguarded rooftop, he makes his way to the roof undetected. Cleverly, the Fabrizio clan member locates the chimney that leads down to the room occupied by Bugsy. The would-be assassin then lowers a makeshift bomb down the chute, which explodes a bit prematurely, sending a barrage of broken bricks in the direction of Siegel. Siegel finds himself in the ICU, but with only minor injuries. Reportedly, Siegel wakes up in the hospital and he is infuriated that someone had the nerve to try and blow him up. Lansky advises that cooler heads should prevail, and that a hasty reaction is unwarranted and unnecessarily risky. Bugsy disagrees. He takes it upon himself to sneak out of the hospital and hunt the duo down. Bugsy and two associates meet up after Siegel escapes the hospital through a window. 
The three gunmen pose as police detectives to lure them outside, where they viciously gun them down in front of two stunned witnesses. It doesn't take long for police and rival gang members to see through the hospital room alibi. Soon after dealing with the brothers, the mob gets wind of Tony Fabrizio working on a memoir and giving it to his attorney upon completion. In one particularly long chapter, Fabrizio outlines a section on Siegel and his role in Murder Incorporated. New York is getting too hot for Bugsy Siegel. It's an interesting form of revenge. It's like, oh yeah, you killed my brother? I'm going to write a memoir, and it's going to be pretty unflattering about you, Bugsy Siegel. <laughs> going back to the bomb thing, I can just see like some fat guy lowering a bomb down a chimney. He's like, we got him. We got him. <laughs> and then it blows up halfway down, and he's like, shit. <laughs> or he just drops the like, let's go the rope too soon, and bangs around <laughs> the chimney. Yeah, I don't know what went wrong with that. I have a feeling by bomb, it's like a, a bunch of dynamite strapped together with a fuse. So it's, you know, you're, you got a fuse and you got a distance to drop and whatever. But so, yeah, whatever happened, it, it was a little bit botched yeah. and it, it barely hurt Siegel, you know. It's yeah. worth noting, too, that uh, this third guy that wrote the memoir, before he left town, Bugsy did find him and kill him. Okay. Yeah, he got him too. <laughs> Got to get one last kill in before he heads out west. Even the co-author couldn't get away. Yeah, he did not get away unscathed. <laughs> Bugsy tracked him down pretty quick and killed him, too. Uh. Lansky, out of concern for his friend and most valuable soldier, decides that the gang needs to find work for Siegel that is far from the New York scene. Bugsy is sent to Los Angeles by the East Coast mob, a place he is no stranger to. With Jack Dragna, a boss in the L.A. crime family, Siegel's job is to cultivate and further develop syndicate gambling schemes around the city. To help him in this endeavor, he enlists the help of Mickey Cohen, the gang boss whom Siegel makes his chief lieutenant. Okay, so at this point, Lansky's going over to Havana, Cuba, and he's getting the lay of the land as far as casinos and gambling rackets over there, kind of Godfather style. (laughs) And uh, Luciano sends Siegel over to... Hollywood to kind of make his bones over there. So this Dragna guy is running what's called a wires racket. And I guess what's going on is when they gamble there, they need to get like race results and things from faraway places. And this Dragna guy, he's known as being pretty weak as far as like having an army of muscle, but he was smart in that he set up some kind of a phone wire system that's basically like guys are watching the races or they're looking at the boards on binoculars. They're telling the bets in real time. It's almost like internet. And they're wow. saying like, here's the spread. Here's what the here's what the odds are. Wow. Yeah, and then he's calling in the results immediately and stuff. So this whole thing's been facilitated out in California by this pretty elaborate network yeah. wire system that he has set up. Yeah, ahead of his time. Yeah, he was. <laughs> and then this is Siegel's thing. He just comes in and takes it, like he always does. Like he's not uh, mine now. Yeah, he doesn't have the ideas. He just likes your ideas. Dragna, knowing full well of Siegel's less-than-understanding personality, wisely decides to take a backseat to Bugsy in the gambling rackets. With Siegel being supported by the likes of Lansky and an imprisoned Luciano, Dragna takes Lucky's advice to cooperate with the volatile Bugsy. In order to monitor the business better and not worry about affairs back home, Siegel decides to move the family out west and brings Esta and their daughters to the Golden State. According to income tax returns, Bugsy Siegel is a legal gambler who earns his living through legal means. (laughs) The numbers racket sees a significant boost in business once Siegel takes the reins. 
1942, bookmaking operations under Bugsy are raking in an impressive 500 grand a day. Not only is Siegel taking over the numbers game, but he's also getting his hands dirty in the drug trade. Using money from the gambling rackets, Bugsy helps establish a trade route to Mexico from the United States. However, after four years in the big chair, Siegel's position with the illegal bookmaking operation is overtaken by the Chicago outfit, citing ongoing problems with Bugsy when it comes to management policies. Siegel's percentage of the racing wire is handed over to Dragna, frustrating Bugsy even further. Three years later, in 1935, Luciano again enlists the help of Siegel, teaming up with Dutch Schultz and killing rival loan sharks Lewis and Joseph Amberg. And, uh, of course, we covered uh, Dutch last week. Yep. And uh, an interesting thing, there's rumors about, remember Bo Weinberg? Yeah. Yeah, he was making plans for uh, Dutch's stuff when he thought Dutch was going to go down. And they say he just disappeared when, when Dutch got back. It's kind of, There's rumors that uh, Bo Weinberg was an old childhood friend of Bugsy Siegel. Ah. And there's rumors that him and Bugsy took a little sabbatical party break. And uh, while they were out drinking or something, Bugsy just knifed him to death and killed him. <laughs> so, but that's not confirmed and stuff, though. What I know of Dutch, it's hard to believe he would farm that out to Bugsy Siegel. I think Dutch would want to do that himself, yeah. and, and, he, and he wouldn't pay for that. Yeah. But, you know, it's out there. I've heard rumors that it's him, it was Bugsy that did it. In spite of all the hurdles thrown his way by the outfit, Siegel shakes it off and proceeds to manage several offshore casinos and even a big-time prostitution ring, which he may or may not have had a discount to. <laughs> Far from stupid... Bugsy procures and keeps relationships with many important people in the L.A. area, including politicians, high-profile businessmen, attorneys, accountants, and lobbyists, most of whom acted as a front for Siegel's numerous illegal and illicit hobbies. Siegel's circle of friends and acquaintances extended far beyond public officials and lawmen, associating and insulating himself with some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry. Throughout his time in Hollywood, Bugsy is famous for fraternizing with George Raft, Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, and Cary Grant, and even major studio executives like Louis B. Meyer and Jack Warner. Cary Grant. Jack Warner and Louis B. Meyer, I mean, those are like studio heads. That's like MGM and Warner Brothers. Yes. There's rumors that they were even toying with the idea of making Bugsy a star. Like, they did screenplays and stuff with him. That's a rumor, but if he did it, it didn't go very well because it died on the vine. Jean Harlow, one of the biggest actresses of the time, was anointed godmother of Siegel's daughter Millicent. Throwing Gatsby-esque parties all over his various Hollywood real estate properties, Siegel eventually gains the respect of Tony Curtis, Phil Silvers, and even the mythical and iconic Frank Sinatra. So he really integrated himself into the Hollywood uh, circles, and they love him because he's kind of dangerous. He's a well-known gangster, but I don't think they're really getting what he, what he really does. You know, they just yeah. think, "Ooh, he's he, they're they're thinking movie star gangster stuff." Yeah. And they're doing little things like like they'll give him a hundred bucks to bet because they don't know how to place an illegal bet. And Bugsy's <laughs> making it easy. Like, oh, yeah, I'll put a hundred down on it for you. You know, stuff like that. So uh, they're starting to feel like uh, big shots and outlaws themselves. It makes them feel like, you know, they're a little edgy, which, of course, they are not. No. Ooh, we're know? hanging out with a gangster. Like, it's a, they get a, there's a thrill out of it. Exactly. Yeah. And they have no idea what that really means. <laughs> After he pats him on the back, he's going to go 
bury a body somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and this is they're they're way out of their leagues on this. <laughs> Bugsy takes to a relationship with Los Angeles socialite Dorothy DeFrazo, the wife of an Italian count. With both lovers all in on the extramarital activities, the affair eventually takes Siegel all the way over to the old country, where he met a fellow upstanding citizen in Benito Mussolini. The gangster makes a weapon sales pitch to the dictator, probably a successful one, and crosses paths with Nazi leaders Hermann Goring and Joseph Goebbels. As it turns out, even Bugsy Siegel is rubbed the wrong way by the Third Reich, even going as far as offering to kill them for Mussolini. I don't know where to start here, but <laughs> let's start with Dorothy DeFrasso. Uh, you had some things to say about her. <laughs> Not so flattering things to say. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. This is a frumpy old woman, and he's hanging out with all these starlets. I'm looking at the lineup of, of the women this guy has taken down, yeah. and then I look at this woman. I'm trying to describe her. It'd be like Angela Lansbury on Murder, She Wrote. Right, if if you remember that stuff, or maybe if you're watching Netflix now, she's chummy from Call the Midwife. Okay, uh. this woman, it's <laughs> what is he doing? <laughs> like, I can't even believe he'd get uh. drunk and take her in a side room, let alone go to Italy, <laughs> and then you know, and her husband's uh. there, right? Yeah. And, and he's cool with it. Now, he wants to kill the Nazis. And he doesn't want to do it for Mussolini. He wants to do it for himself. Even Bugsy doesn't like the Nazis. No. Because he's probably gone two days without killing somebody, and he's itching yeah. to anyway, and now they're Nazis, and he's a Jew, yeah. right? And they're doing their little, it's not full-blown Nazi stuff like we know they're going to do, but they're doing enough that he doesn't like them, and he wants them dead. Well, Dorothy doesn't let him do it because she thinks it might upset her husband because <laughs> they're guests in the house, right? He's like... <laughs> He's like, you have to understand, he'll let me bang it down with a gangster, that's okay, but <laughs> yeah. killing Nazis would be a little bit loosey-goosey for the count. Yeah. You know, you can't do that. <laughs> so, so she tells him, like, don't do it, my husband will get mad. Just just take me in the back room and plow me Jeez. like a that's, I mean, that's crazy, though. Like this gangster from New York, I know it's before they hit their height, but he meets two of the most prolific yeah. Nazis. Joseph Goebbels and Hermann Goring. Man. Like, they are the upper echelon of evil at the height of the Nazi party. And he's just happened to brush shoulders with him. And Mussolini is insane how all these figures Different eventually evil hanging out. come together. Yeah, I mean, right. the comparison at the end of their lives really makes... Bugsy, Bugsy not guy. look like the worst, <laughs> I know, the worst he, dude in the world. <laughs> he could have done the Lord's work right there and took yeah, these know. guys out. Yeah. You know, I mean, the world's a better place. Could you, hey, could you imagine <laughs> Bugsy Siegel takes out Joseph Goebbels and Herman Gorn before they can rise to their height? Bugsy Siegel saves millions. <laughs> That's true. Hero. They wouldn't even know what he did. Yeah. You know what I mean? They wouldn't even know what he did. Yeah. Jeez. But it would be uh, possibly bigger than his Las Vegas contribution. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Like we have probably a successful sales pitch because Mussolini definitely bothers. So, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a short pitch. I have some guns. I'll take them. <laughs> probably as far as it needed to go for him. While in Hollywood, Siegel develops ways of shaking down various studios throughout the entertainment capital of the world by taking command of major unions such as the Screen Extras Guild and the Los Angeles Teamsters. Siegel arranges stage strikes to force studio executives to pay extortion fees. Knowing damn well they would not ask for a reimbursement, Siegel commonly borrows money from movie stars and never pays them back for their charity. 
He uh, borrowed money to the tune of four hundred thousand uh, dollars that he never returned. You found that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow. And they never complained to the cops and stuff. Like at, at some point, I don't know if they just so enamored with him or if they're just a bunch of frightened Hollywood suckers. You know, that were palling around with him and stuff. But in his uh, union, he'd have control of all the extras. So right before a movie shoots, he's like, yeah, there's a strike. Yeah. And he's just like, yeah, I need uh, $100,000 to get these people working again. And they said, there's no time to get extras. You know, there's no way. They, they can't put it together. So they basically, I'm over a barrel. And then that night, they're at the party with him, slapping him on the back, having drinks. Like, it's all... <laughs> It's all good, you know. Like they, that, that's the kind of weird charm he's got over Jeez. these people. Mosley's living the high life of the Hollywood socialites and is going through women like cocktails. One woman stops him in his tracks. Her name is Virginia Hill. Virginia Hill is a mall, a mob party girl, and she is the ultimate mall. She has movie star looks, beautiful green eyes and long legs, and is no stranger to the mob life. Brought up by the Chicago crime outfit. Hill is not only eye candy, but actually moves money, and some say drugs, around for the mob. She is trusted implicitly, having a reputation for never lifting a dime. She enjoys the excitement of organized crime and the company of mobsters, and has brief relationships with as many as she prefers. Now, Virginia Hill does make sense. Yeah, she She's does. a pretty girl, tall, leggy. Yeah, yeah she's, she's got it going on. Yeah. I guess she's from Alabama. She left when she was about 15, ran away from home, didn't want to let life and stuff. And somehow she meanders her way to the World Fair. And this is where she bumps into, she might be 17 now. She's at the World's Fair. She bumps into Joe Epstein, just a low-level gangster, not a handsome guy and stuff. But what he does have going for him is a great big roll of money. Mm -hmm. And she sees that, and she figures she's going to trade in on her good looks, her body, and and she's going to make it big. So these two hook up, and then he takes her back to Chicago, I guess. And she ends up doing everybody. She's proud of it. Like, I saw her in a, what do you call it, a trial or something. She's testifying. Mm-hmm. And they're asking her, like, how does a girl from Alabama end up in the company of all these monsters? And she said, because I'm the best damn lay in the world. <laughs> right? And she's, she's crude. And, like, uh, some yeah. reporter starts getting sassy with her. And she punches the female reporter right in the face. So uh, you can see what Bugsy loves in her. She's a female <laughs> Bugsy. Yeah. So her and Bugsy, they go out and they hit it off. But by all accounts, they're like the volatile relationship. Mm-hmm. And like everybody knows that couple that like ruins the party because they fight the entire time. Yeah. And then they go home at night and just tear each other apart in the sack. <laughs> and that's who they were. Like everybody had to get out of the room while they throw plates and dishes at uh. each other. And, you know, everything's broken when they're around and stuff. And then they just go and, and they, they get it on. It's so perfect the, for each other. Yeah. They're perfect for each other and they're horrible for everybody around yep. them and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And plus, she is not loyal to Bugsy by any stretch. Mm-hmm. She'll go out with anyone she wants. And he's, I, I think that drives him crazy, but he loves it too. And it's just the strangest relationship I've seen among yeah. gangsters. Yeah. But like I said, if you really search your past, you always know that couple. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And if you don't, <laughs> then hello, you are that couple. <laughs> just as you think everything in life is going to come up roses, here comes the turnaround. Things start to go south for Siegel when in 1936, perpetual pain in the ass, Thomas E. Dewey, having already locked up Luciano, has turned his sights on the members of Murder Incorporated. He's going after the Garment Center rackets and other shakedowns, but his main focus is the drug dealing networks. 
Drug dealers are getting long sentences, so Dewey aligns himself with the Federal Narcotic Bureau to build a case against big-time dealers like Lepke Buckalter. Lepke goes into hiding with the assistance of Albert Anastasia. And we kind of covered this whole situation in Anastasia. And we talked about how Lepke Bullcolder was in trouble and Anastasia was in trouble. But yeah. on the flip side, here we are. Bugsy Siegel is looking at this as unilaterally his problem. While Lepke is on the lam, he starts putting together a list of his associates who could turn state's witness and take down Murder Incorporated. This is in the wake of rats like Reed Ailes blowing the lid on various criminal wrongdoings. Lepke and Anastasia are putting the word out for any possibly compromised members of Murder Incorporated to get out of town or face the consequences. Many face the consequences. One of these was Harry Big Greeny Greenberg. The following is an adaptation of the sequence of events according to the book Mobsters, Gangs, Crooks, and Creeps. Harry Greenberg, who also went under the names of Harry Schachter and Harry Scober, Grew up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan with Lepke and his longtime partner Jacob Gura Shapiro, known first as the Gorilla Boys, and then, when they got rich, the Gold Dust Twins. Greenberg was tight with the two guys, and is involved around all kinds of rackets. Presumably a few murders were involved, and whether or not Greeny is actively involved, he absolutely knows enough about them to cause trouble. Thus, Greeny finds himself on Buckhalter's shortlist. During this time, Greenberg bums around with Lefke and Shapiro at the Lock Sheldrake Country Club in the Catskills, owned by a legit guy named Sam Tannenbaum. Why is this important? Because Sam Tannenbaum has a teenage son named Albert, who works at the hotel either waiting tables or setting up beach chairs by the lake. Sam probably hopes that his son can take over things when he retires, but it's not in the cards, as Albert falls in line with the likes of Greeny and the Murder Twins. At some point, Greeny approaches the younger Tannenbaum and offers him a gig with his friends, saying something like, You want a good paying job with my friends? I think you know what I mean. Inadvertently, Greeny has just recruited his own murderer. Tannenbaum rises up the ladder and Lepke's Murder Incorporated. Now back to the current situation, where everyone is being advised to get out of town, Greeny seems to take the advice and hightails it to Montreal, Canada. Doesn't take long to realize he's broke and his life now sucks. Now he gets stupid. He contacts Lefke's capo and says something like, Give me five grand to ride this out if you want to keep my mouth shut, because Montreal sucks. Greenberg waited for a response, or the money, or both. When he got neither, he got to thinking again. Hey, maybe sending that letter wasn't the smartest thing to do. It didn't take much time for Lefke to move Greeny from warn to kill list, but by the time they got a hit squad to Canada, he'd wised up and got the hell out of Dodge. Greenberg is reasonably well connected so he heads up to Detroit, seeking the aid and comfort of the infamous Purple Gang. They welcome him in and treat him pretty good. Too good, in fact, so Greenberg gets the hell out of there before the hit squad arrives. Tannenbaum and two gunmen arrive too late, as Greeny has split without leaving a thank you note or a forwarding address. He heads west. If he went any further west, his hat would float. If you think he's learned his lesson, you're mistaken, as he looks up his old trusted pal Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, and the rest is history. So when the word comes from back east that Greenberg is in Hollywood, of course Siegel is given the contract. Now, usually a man of Siegel's nature just gives out the orders, and maybe helps with the planning. But Siegel insists, against the advice of Lepke, on doing the actual murder of his longtime pal personally. Bugsy just loves a good killing. We all beg Bugsy to keep out of the shooting, Lepke's pal Doc said years later. He's too big a man by this time to become personally involved, but Bugsy doesn't listen. He says Greenberg is a menace to all of us, 
and if the cops grab him, he could tell the whole story of our outfit back to the 1920s. At Newark Airport, just before he boards a flight to Hollywood, Tannenbaum is given a small doctor's instrument bag by the boss of New Jersey mob himself, Abner Longies Wilman. Inside this bag are several clean guns which are used in the Greenberg Hollywood caper. In the meantime, Siegel is assembling his hit team, which includes Whitey Krakauer, Siegel's brother-in-law from New York City, and Frankie Carbo, a Lower East Side thug and Murder Incorporated operative who has already been arrested 17 times and charged with five murders. Carbo is also a big-time fight promoter and manager, and many of his top-notch fighters are suspected of taking dives. Now comes the issue of obtaining a getaway car. Sholem Bernstein, an independent operator from New York City, just happens to be vacationing in Hollywood when he decides to pay his old pal Bugsy a visit. Soon Bernstein will be sorry he ever made that visit. Before even the small talk began, Siegel gets right to the point. Steal a car, Siegel parks at Bernstein. Leave it in the parking lot down the street. Bernstein, a veteran on these sort of things, is perplexed. Usually when he clips a car, he hides it in a private garage where the police won't see it, but he's trained to follow orders. So Bernstein boosts a car and parks it in the open parking lot, just as Siegel has requested. Almost immediately, the owner of the stolen car files a police report. Because they're on the lookout for the stolen car, the cops spot the car right out in the open and return it to his rifle owner. Despite this misfortune, Siegel tells Bernstein to get another car. Bernstein says he will, and he even tells Siegel how he usually operates. There's usually license plate switching and various other tricks to elude immediate detection. Siegel informs Bernstein that out west, things are done his way. Even though Bernstein is in Hollywood on vacation, the mob rules are when a boss tells you to do something, you do it, or you're dead. But Bernstein figures when he's back in New York City and asked to do a job, the mob bosses let him handle things his own way. Now, since Siegel is dictating terms, Bernstein feels he's under no obligation to continue with the job. So Bernstein jumps in his car and heads back to New York City, which displeases Siegel to no end and causes him to find someone else to pilfer a car for the Greenberg caper. Fuming, Siegel now wants Bernstein dead. By this time, the surveillance on Greenberg's residence reveals that Greenberg was little more than a recluse. He never leaves home, except for his nightly 15-minute drive each way to get a newspaper in nearby Bel Air. Greenberg tells his wife, who he has been foolishly towing around, that his little nightly excursion keeps him from blowing his top. On the night of November 22, 1939, Thanksgiving Eve, a gunman will blow Goldstein's top for him. Just after dark, Tannenbaum picks up the stolen car from the parking lot. Then he drives Siegel and Carbo to Siegel's home to pick up a Cadillac, which is to be used as a crash car in case the cops or a nosy bystander decide to chase them after the deed is done. The two cars with Carbo and Siegel's car then drive to a spot several houses down from Greenberg's residence. They watch as a few hours later Greenberg emerges from his house, looking carefully both ways, yet missing the two parked cars down the block. He gets into his car and speeds away. Carbo then emerges from Siegel's car, slithers down the block, and hides in the bushes near Greenberg's house. Like clockwork, just over 30 minutes later, Greenberg turns the corner of Yucca Street and heads toward his house. His car passes the two parked cars, but both Tannenbaum and Siegel have slid down in their seats so they cannot be seen. A split second later, Tannenbaum flashes his headlights just for an instant, alerting Carbo, who is waiting in the wings, ready to exit stage right into a murder scene. As Greenberg tries to exit his car, Carbo speeds from the shadows and pumps five bullets into his head. 
Carbo then races back to the stolen car and jumps in next to Tannenbaum. Tannenbaum races away, with Siegel and his crashed Cadillac following close behind. The crashed car is always a legitimate registered car, so the driver can claim after a crash, either with a police car or a civic-minded civilian's car, that he had just lost control. The two cars rush to the preordained spot where they meet with another co-conspirator waiting in a third car. Third man turns out to be Champ Seagal, a small-time criminal who's always willing to help the big boys with whatever. Seagal immediately drives Tannenbaum to San Francisco, where, mission accomplished, Tannenbaum hops on a plane back east. While Greenberg is being filled with lead, his wife Ida is inside their house waiting for her husband's return. She is later called to testify at the 1940 Harry Greenberg murder trial of Siegel. Carbo is scheduled to be tried at a separate trial, and Tannenbaum is turned rat, ready to fly out to California to testify at both trials. On the stand, Ida Greenberg testifies, I was reading and suddenly I heard a few shots, and because they were so fast and because I heard a car drive away, I thought they were backfires. But finally, I got out of bed and went downstairs. I recognized the car and I saw a great amount of blood outside the car. I opened the door and there was my husband. I started screaming for help. So at this point, Siegel has not forgotten his wayward car thief, Shalom Bernstein. <laughs> Bernstein couldn't be touched by Siegel unless Siegel had the permission of the boss of Bernstein's New York City territory. So the New York City bosses consider Bernstein one of their best men and refuse to harm a hair on his head. But Siegel is adamant that Bernstein has to die, so this compels him to fly to New York and plead his case for the death penalty of Bernstein. So now they have to have this whole meeting, right? This is how passionate Bugsy is about this. And uh, Big Bugsy lays it out. You know, I told him to steal a car and blah, 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 and he disappeared and I gave him a direct order and by the rules, he gets to die. Right? It's like, damn, he's got some good points. Sholem's got to go. <laughs> he makes a lot of good points. <laughs> he's not wrong. <laughs> it's like the Dutch thing. And then somebody else goes, I don't know. <laughs> well, the guy that says, I don't know, is no uh, none other than Abe Rellis, uh, who is not yet turned rat and is now the... Uh, the lawyer, if you will, for Mr. Bernstein. Oh, kid twist. He's like, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, my client, he yeah. didn't leave a job. He stole a car. Stole it Bugsy's way. And the uh, car got foiled. And then he's ready to go steal another one when he gets a call. It's his mother. She's dying. He has to fly home. He's not thinking about the job anymore, or he meant no disrespect. It's his poor, ailing mother, and what mother-loving son doesn't want to go home and hold her hand and tell her that everything's going to be okay and that you love her as her last breath slip away? And they say by the time he's done laying this bullshit on, there's not a dry eye at the table, right? Jeez. Not even Bugsies. <laughs> and they all drop it. They're like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you're a good boy. You know, it's okay. And he, and he basically gets off scot scot free. He had no yes. idea if that if that statement isn't made, he's a dead man. <laughs> he has no idea. He was one speech away from death. They also didn't know when Relis is done with him, everybody's a dead man. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. But Siegel's satisfied, and he flies back to California. Yeah. In the end, Tannenbaum turns rat, and Bugsy himself is implicated and charged in the murder of Greeny. Newspapers and other media outlets take significant interest in the case, especially given the VIP treatment Siegel is receiving behind bars. 
Siegel refuses to eat the prison food, frequently is allowed female visitors, and of course, is allowed to leave for essential dental appointments. <laughs> Jerry Giesler is hired by Siegel to serve as his attorney, a man who's defended the likes of Clarence Darrow, Charlie Chaplin, Errol Flynn, and Marilyn Monroe. Giesler's defense strategy is significantly bolstered when two state witnesses turn up dead, sending a clear message to other potential testifiers. Following the Tannenbaum testimony dismissal, Siegel is acquitted in 1942 due to a lack of evidence, Anastasia style. You know, I looked up this Jerry Giesler guy because I saw these names and I was just like, who is this guy? Yeah. And I, Errol Flynn, I didn't know what he was uh, in trouble for. Statutory rape. Uh, <laughs> hate to see it. Hate to see it. <laughs> I was like, God, Errol Flynn, I knew he was an asshole, but... Uh, he was the swashbuckling... Uh, Robin Hood. Ah, oh, man. Uh, <laughs> tough. It was tough. Throughout the trial, media members pulled back the curtain on Siegel's crime-ridden past and began referring to him as Bugsy, the first public mention of the nickname. Siegel allegedly loathed the moniker, preferring the more honorable names of Ben and Mr. Siegel. In 1944, after being arrested on bookmaking charges, Bugsy is again acquitted, thus continuing Siegel's hot streak in the court of law. During Siegel's trial, Abe Kintwist Rellis, who is now also turned canary and is the corroborating witness the prosecution needs to convict Siegel and later Carbo in California, suddenly flies out of the six-story window of the Half Moon Hotel in Coney Island. At the time, Rellis was under 24-hour police guard, even while he was sleeping. However, the official police report said Rellis died trying to escape by lowering himself down the side of the hotel using several bedsheets. How this was possible with a policeman supposedly in Rellis' bedroom was never fully explained by the police. <laughs> Frank Costello later said he had spread 50 grand around the New York City Police Department to get rid of Rellis. It was also rumored the police guarding Rellis were the ones who threw Rellis out of the window. But you figure Anastasia wants him dead, right? Yeah, now yeah. Bugsy wants him dead. Buckholder wants him dead. Luciano wants him dead. I'm pretty sure Vito Genovese wants him dead. <laughs> This guy, it, God only knows, you know, who threw him out the window. Yeah, they had even tried to keep all the witnesses' identities a secret. They called them like Witness X, Witness Y, and uh. Witness Z in court so they wouldn't figure out who the guys were. Of course, it didn't work. They all got murdered. The other one who got killed was uh, Siegel's brother-in-law, Whitey. <laughs> yeah. And Siegel did him himself. Yeah, he got uh. him too. Not in the family. He had to go. Not the brother-in-law. <laughs> The case against Siegel fell like relics from the window, and the charges against Siegel were dismissed due to a lack of evidence. Eventually, all witness testimonies fell apart, and as a result, the charges against Carbo were dropped, and no one was ever convicted of the murder of Harry Big Greeny Greenberg. Following his stint in Hollywood, Bugsy is seeking out legitimacy in the business world. In 1946, Siegel seizes an opportunity in a pre-construction phase hotel owned by businessman William W. Wilkerson. Siegel has ties to the state of Nevada going back to the 30s, a time when Bugsy had traveled there with Lansky's lieutenant Moe Sedway. The duo had provided illicit services to the Hoover Dam construction crews back in the day. Siegel was eventually given control over the operation by Lansky, but he transferred leadership over to Sedway before taking off for Hollywood. 
So the whole deal with uh, Wilkerson, he's a big Hollywood big shot. He owns restaurants and things there. Very successful. He's also just a degenerate gambler. And they say at some point he's up to gambling like $50,000 a day. Oh, anywhere from five hundred to fifty grand. And I guess a, a good friend of his finally said, you know, if you're going to gamble this much, you should at least own the house. Yeah. So he gets the idea to go and build this big hotel. And... Uh, he starts it and everything's going great, but then he loses some big score and he's broke and construction just stops. And that's when Siegel swoops in and, uh, you know, helps him out. Lansky requests Siegel's supervision over Wilkerson's development of the city. Siegel pushes back against his friend's wishes, not wanting to leave the high life and social status of Beverly Hills behind. In the end, Bugsy consents to move out to Vegas. While getting everything in line in Vegas, Siegel has his lieutenants pulling strong-arm tactics in the gambling rackets of Los Angeles, securing them all for Siegel and company. Back in the desert, Bugsy is more than providing his worth when it comes to building up the hotels and casinos on the Strip. Using black market connections, Siegel avoids the post-war shortages that are taking their toll on the construction industry by acquiring essential building materials, albeit at a substantially increased cost. Yeah, he had a few other endeavors there. Like he bought a casino and then resold it at a huge profit, stuff like that. There was one guy that he tried to buy the casino and he didn't, he was always bragging that he held out and didn't sell them and stuff. So he did a few other uh, bait and switches while he was there besides this big project. Initially, Siegel becomes a very willing learner under Wilkerson's guidance, even to the point where learning the trade takes priority over his extravagant lifestyle. Predictably, Siegel begins to take offense to Wilkerson's authority role and even develops paranoia towards him. Tom Seward, a business partner of Wilkerson, describes Siegel as so jealous of Billy it drives him crazy. To no one's surprise, Bugsy begins making moves behind Wilkerson's back. It even goes as far as telling crew members that he is the man in charge now and changing blueprint specifications. Wilkerson is forced to concede control of the hotel construction to Siegel while maintaining supervision over all other aspects. Siegel provides the gambling, liquor and food, and big-name entertainers at reasonable rates. Bugsy's vision sets the stage for the modern-day Las Vegas model, believing attractions will lure both high rollers and vacationers willing to lose $50 to $100. Wilkerson is ultimately pushed out of the picture entirely, wisely backing down and selling all his stakes in the now-named Flamingo, under the threat of death. As a result, Wilkerson goes into hiding in Paris while Bugsy forms the Nevada Project Corporation of California, naming himself as president. From now on, the Flamingo is unilaterally mob property. And the Flamingo is the nickname he had for Virginia Hill because ah. of her long legs and stuff. So yeah, the Flamingo was named after her. You, you go. gotta remember, he's got a wife back home. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Esther. might have forgotten about her by now, but she's still in the picture. <laughs> she's not gone yet. <sighs> Siegel demands that the Flamingo be luxurious beyond reason, with each bathroom in the 93-room establishment having its own sewer system. After multiple extravagant and unnecessary expenses, the ultimate cost of the Flamingo Hotel's construction comes out to $6 million, about $62.5 million in today's economy. Trouble first began brewing in 1946, when the syndicate deals Siegel an ultimatum, provide accounting or forfeit all funding. Bugsy's checks have been bouncing lately, 
So providing accounting to the syndicate is the last thing he wants to do. This is a there's a lot of disputed uh, things of what actually happened, and some of them I hear, and it's it's hard to believe and stuff. But this is when Lansky and Associates start realizing something's wrong, and even with the numerous blunders, too much money's missing, right? <laughs> and uh, so he, there, these things are being explained. There's guys saying like they used to sell him palm trees, right? Like a truckload of palm trees. There's no palm trees in the desert, so they're yeah. expensive. They get them there. They say that Siegel buys them, and then they drive them out of town and they sell them back to him in the morning. <laughs> and I, so, like, he's supposedly buying ten trucks of palm trees, but it's all the same truck. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. You know, I mean, like. Everybody knows who Bugsy Siegel is, yeah. right? Would you try to sell him 10 bucks of... No. No. I, and I'm like, I, I don't know, man. I think it's a little bit, you know... I think there were probably... Like, he didn't know anything about this. And, and I don't care how hard he studied. He was an ass at, at building this thing. And, he, yeah. he, and it's hard. You know, anybody that works in construction knows that nobody ever runs the job well. No. You know? But whether or not people are purposely ripping him off, I find it hard to believe. Yeah. Because he'll kill you for so much less than that. But, you know, another thing he did was he flew the flamingos in. He wanted real flamingos. And they were like, you know, there's, well, there's a reason that the flamingos aren't here already. You know, it's a desert and they don't like it. It's yeah. 130 degrees. That's different than being in a swamp in Florida. But he insists and they bring him there. And I think in three days, all the flamingos were dead. So that money's down the drain, right? And then there was just your little things like the kitchen was too small. People were burning their butts when they turn around. And yeah. so they got to gut that. And they'll be like, what I didn't understand, they said there was a, a beam going across the uh, his office and stuff that was like at 5'8". <laughs> and he's 5'10". I know people were shorter, but come on. Yeah. Like a beam. <laughs> and so, so the beam's got to be taken out and stuff. And, uh, See, just things like that that make you think, how did this thing make any money? Well, it didn't at this point. Yeah. And uh, Virginia Hill, he puts her in charge of the furnishings and things like that. So she's buying top dollar everything. Mm right so that's going on so then Bugsy's asking for more money they say no blah 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 so then at some point Luciano and Lansky who have both banged Virginia Hill in the past yeah. <laughs> go there and they pin her down and they're like what the hell's going on and they discover she's going to Switzerland frequently right and she don't like to ski Right? Yeah. So they figure she, they're skimming money and he's using Virginia to take it to Swiss. Like, like It's just getting worse and worse. So they finally pin her down. They slap her around a little bit and they tell her, come clean or we're going to dump acid in your face. Uh. Right. And I guess she's not really in love because then she turns on Bugsy. Yeah. Like she's not willing to take the, the acid bath for him. <laughs> and so now there's trouble. And, yeah. and Lansky, it's his old time friend. So he is doing cartwheels to keep Bugsy alive at this point. By selling non-existent stocks in a Jordan Belfort-esque manner, Siegel mounted a private fundraising campaign and doubled the workforce so the project could supposedly be completed in half the estimated time. By the time the Flamingo is nearly completed in November of 1946, Siegel decides to move the grand opening up from March 1947 to December 26. Thinking he can lure Christmas vacationers as well as high-profile celebrities away from their homes, Siegel believes he can 100% complete the project and repay his investors. However, even Siegel's invitations to the opening are a disaster, listing December 28th as the grand opening instead of the 26th. Siegel and his crew must personally call all the invitees and notify them of the mistake. 
Okay, just doomed. You know a printer <laughs> just lost his life for that. <laughs> He's gone. Opening day arrives, but the hotel is not completely ready. The hotel portion of the project remains incomplete, and virtually no room is ready for occupancy. Bugsy's mobster friends and associates wisely advise him to delay the opening, but to no avail. With only the restaurant, lobby, and casino portions open, the Flamingo has its debut as scheduled. It is met with disasters of a god-given nature. One of the biggest rainstorms in modern recollection hits the Las Vegas Strip, washing out the desert and closing all airports. Virtually none of Siegel's big-name celebrities can get to Vegas. The Flamingo is patronized only by curious locals who soon find they cannot be accommodated for an overnight stay and eventually bleed off into the neighboring and more hospitable hotel casinos on the Strip. Hey, uh, you know who did make it? Jimmy Durante. <laughs> he was there entertaining, but uh, nobody was there to really appreciate it. And uh, also, remember Esther? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, she's had enough. She's filing for divorce. Uh, <laughs> there we go. All right. Forgot I was married. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, we're, we're still together? So he's, he's having to whip out an alimony check to her now and, and child support for the kids and stuff. So, so I'm yeah. sure he's using the construction budget. Yeah, he has, yeah. He has no problem burning money. Yeah. So. Oh, I'm sure it was a crushing blow for him. Yeah. You know? But, uh, yeah, that happened at the same time. In the weeks to come, and despite many famous guests and operational gambling tables, Ongoing construction and incomplete portions of the building do not bode well for the Flamingo. After only two weeks of operation, the gambling tables report losses of 270 grand and the hotel is completely shut down in January of 1947. Siegel works his tail off to try and please the bosses back home and make the Flamingo any kind of success. After numerous renovations, it reopens in March 1947. It even though it begins to turn somewhat of a profit, the bosses are beyond impatient with Siegel and his operation. I think Lansky was saying, there's no way this thing is losing $300,000. <laughs> He's like, okay, I think blackjack is your best bet. Like, uh, those are your best odds. Yeah. And they're six to one against you. <laughs> Everything else, little slot machines, craps tables, all that stuff nobody wins you know it's so he's like there's no way in hell that this thing's losing money yeah luciano giving siegel one last chance reportedly calls him personally and explains that it's time to repay the investment capital and that it needs to be repaid quickly bugsy now considering himself to be the godfather of vegas and presumably beyond reproach tells luciano to go to hell or words to that effect and that he'll repay the loan whenever he sees fit. He slams the phone down, cutting off the connection to Charlie Luciano. As I'm going after that, I even had like this sense of dread, you know? (laughs) Like, like I was afraid for him. Uh, He died that day. Damn it. That's the day he died. It just took a while for death to get there. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, but he was a dead man walking. Yeah, It's like in Heat, Brett, when De Niro's talking to that guy, and he's like <laughs> talking into an empty phone. There's a dead man on the other end of this line. <laughs> it's the exact same thing. <laughs> it had to be like this just refreshing little breath of air for Luciano go. He goes, eh, there's something I don't hear every day. <laughs> Got a laugh out of it. Yeah, he, <laughs> he probably did. He's probably like, I can't chuckle. remember the last time someone mouthed off to me. Hell, it had to have been eight. <laughs> <laughs> and now we've got the death of Bugsy Siegel. On June 20th, 1947, Bugsy has flown from Nevada to California 
presumably to meet up with Virginia Hill at her 16-bedroom mansion in Los Angeles. He arrives to find that Miss Hill will not be joining him, having inexplicably taken a sudden trip to Paris without any notification to her boyfriend. Girls will be girls. After a night out with friends, Ben Siegel and his close friend, Alan Smiley, sit for drinks in the living room of Hill's residence. Bugsy is seated on a flower-patterned sofa, and Smiley in a comfortable-looking chair to his adjacent right. One more guest remains unannounced, having forgone the comfort of the luxury residence for the more opportune concealment of the outside shrubbery just outside the living room window where the two men are seated. The killer peers inside the window and sees Bugsy sitting comfortably and apparently reading the Los Angeles Times. He will never see it coming. Alan Smiley is close by, but apart from his friend. It's of no consequence, as Smiley is not the target and from his obscured vantage point will not be able to serve as a witness to what's about to go down. The assassin slowly raises a 30 caliber military M1 carbine, levels the weapon until he has the notorious hitman turned entrepreneur in his sights. He begins firing, window glass shatters as the shots ring out, and Smiley instinctively dives to the floor. For Benjamin Siegel, it's far too late for evasive maneuvers as a bullet tears into his head, exploding the eyeball from his left eye socket and sending it flipping across the room. Another shot tears into his head, although not with the grisly showmanship of the first shot, and two more shots find his upper torso. Another five shots miss entirely, destroying a white marble statue of Bacchus on the room's grand piano and finding their way into the wall beyond. No one's perfect, and it's good enough. Bugsy Siegel is plenty dead. Meanwhile, in Las Vegas, three of Luciano's men are storming into the Flamingo and taking over operations, before police have even identified that it's Siegel who's dead. So the grisly murder investigation ensues as a matter of course, and uh, photos of his execution that are taken, they're now like the icons of mob violence. Up there with Galani and Anastasia, and it's, if you're out there, if you want to Google the hit on uh, Bugsy Siegel, it's, it's gruesome. Siegel is buried in a $5,000 silver-plated casket, approximately 65 grand today. Reportedly, the mob-style killing of one of their highest members has kept would-be mourners from attending. No mobsters wanted their names attached to him, and Virginia Hill is conspicuously absent. Benjamin Siegel has a rushed five-minute service among a few family members, which is conducted before the funeral home officially opens for the day. This concludes the legend of Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Yeah, besides the flashy coffin, he went out without fanfare, like a, like a lot of these guys. Uh, Virginia Hill, obviously, they told her that what was going to happen, and she let it happen. She had an option of telling him she didn't, because what what point would it serve? They'd both be dead. Yeah. And uh, so she f- took off to Paris, and ultimately she marries a ski instructor. Uh. And, uh, and she's kind of hounded for tax evasion, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. That's when she does the stuff I talked about earlier. And uh, she she takes off and uh, she struggles. I think the uh, ski instructor gets over her pretty quick. So she struggles along for a while. She gets broke. Uh, remember Joe Epstein? Uh-huh. He still sends her money. Uh, <laughs> wow. he, he once said that uh, she's like cancer. Once she gets under your skin, you know, you're, you're done. And, uh, so he, he stuck with her. But eventually she goes to a, to a hilltop, takes a bunch of pills and dies. Mm-hmm. Either that or the mob decided she knew too much and they killed her. But I don't think they would even waste well, their yeah. time pilling her. 
Yeah. I think she'd just disappear in a snowbank. So she probably killed herself. You know, I'm sure she, whatever. Her looks are gone. Her, her trade is, you know, whatever she's traded on is now gone and Bugsy's gone. No more connections. So, yeah, it, she she knew that her life was short, right? She always said life is short, live it up. And uh, yeah, her life was over. Yeah. She's given a good choice. Stay and die with your boyfriend or go to Paris. So. At least they gave her a choice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of them. I'm sure she thought about it for... 10 to 15 seconds yeah. so like I'm packing my bag <laughs> so she's not exactly the female Bugsy because he'd be like there ain't nobody killing me yeah. and I'm not going anywhere <laughs> can't you tell know? me what to do because that's the thing I think they even weighed the options like you know Lansky trying everything to save his life is like why don't we bring somebody else in that can make this happen and they're like there's only one way to tell Bugsy Siegel he's finished yeah. and that's to finish him Yep. You know, he's not right. going to put up with it. Yeah, he's not retiring. He's not walking away. No. <laughs> the quiet life. <laughs> I was uh, looking for anything else to throw in, and I saw this video. Probably anybody that's into Bugsy seen it. It says 15 things you didn't know about Bugsy Siegel. Mm-hmm. And it's basically 14 things that everybody knows about Bugsy Siegel. But, but the one thing that was curious is his daughter, Millicent. And there's lots of interviews with her talking about how she didn't know who her dad was and stuff. Uh, she died penniless. They couldn't even afford the funeral. And uh, for, for all his wealth, he didn't leave anything wow. to his family. So they eventually, you know, they died broke. No, none of his family apparently gained anything out of his wow. his life Jeez. and his wealth. So there's that. Wow. All right. It's been a long night, but a good story. If you're uh, a little disconcerted, it takes us a little while between shows and you've got that empty space that has to be filled, try checking out a podcast. It's called Say Hello to the Bad Guys. And uh, it's a bunch of guys up near Detroit, not far from where I've lived at one point in my life. And uh, I've had a little bit of communication with them. Great guys. They're funny as hell. They're just sitting around drinking, telling stories like this. And they even go outside the gangster realm. They get into like Billy the Kid, things like that. But uh, it's a good show. So definitely, definitely check it out if you haven't already. Joshua, the intern, you got anything for us? Buy Ori Spado's new book, The Accidental Gangster. Links are in the show notes. All right, that's it. Thanks and have a great night. Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat.